Good morning, everyone. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. We're going to be continuing our series in John. Let's stay standing as we read from God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 13, verses 21 to 38. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to that. John 13, 28, 21 to 38. Excuse me. Let's read God's Word for us this morning together. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as we're continuing our series in the book of John, if you've been with us, you know we've been in John for uh, most of this year. And as, we're, as we just read, you're seeing things are starting to heat up. We're, we're, heading, towards, we're heading towards the cross uh, very, very quickly. But this morning, um, I actually want to start, as uh, Pastor Eric mentioned this earlier today, I want to start by talking about love. That's what I want to talk about today. Um, when you really, truly love someone, uh, there's often an impulse, that you may know, to kind of show or express or maybe prove your love to that person. Uh, Alexander Dumas captured this idea in a book uh, he wrote called The Three Musketeers. Never been able to finish this book. If you have, I'm impressed. Um, But uh, these various characters are just constantly kind of like falling in and out of love with one another. And this uh, this idea of wanting to prove your love to someone is is captured by the Duke of Buckingham when he says that uh, what he would be willing to do for his true love. And he says this, Yes, Anne of Austria is my true queen. 
Upon a word from her, I would betray my country, I would betray my king, I would betray my God. So not a great example for us. Anne was married to the king, so he's actually doing all those three things at once. He's betraying country, king, and God, because uh, she's married to someone else who's the king. But you get the idea, it captures that idea of, of, of uh, that telling someone you love them, you want to kind of follow it up with action, right? You want to prove that you actually do love someone for them to understand it. Um, now, chapter 13 began when, by saying this. You may, have, <clears throat> you may remember this from last week. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's an interesting end of that verse, isn't it? That he loved them to the end. It's almost chilling in a way. So we know what's coming. John's foreshadowing what's about to take place, uh, both in chapter 13 here, but also for the rest of, of, of John, all the way to the cross. And it's Jesus' love that brought him to earth, and it's Jesus' love that's going to take him out of it again. And it's his love that we're going to see displayed really clearly for us today in our passage. Now, if you've read any of John's other epistles, uh, you know John uh, will talk about this idea that God is love. First John, he says that very explicitly, that God is love. It's an important idea in John's thinking. But I think for many of us, that idea that God is love can sometimes be more cerebral than it can be felt. Maybe you can, uh, you can understand this, that it's, it's more of a thing that we know than something that we, that we truly grasp, that we understand in our hearts. I've, uh, I've had many, I'm not, I've not been in ministry all that long, uh, but I've had many conversations in a short amount of time with people who don't feel like God really loves them. They believe it, but they think they do. Right? They know that God is love, but God feels distant to them. All right. So maybe that's you, and if that is true of you, and even if it's not today, it's my hope that we would begin to see today, we'd see and understand that we'd sense the vastness of Christ's love for us, that you would sense the vastness of Christ's love for you. Just like Paul prays in Ephesians 3, that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I think we want that, right? We want the, the knowledge of Christ's love to go beyond, or we want our understanding of Christ's love to go beyond just our knowledge. We want it to, to go from head to heart as well. So as we unpack this passage today, we're going to look at three ways that Jesus' love can be seen for us in this text. Those will be our three points. <clears throat> the first is this, that Jesus walked through betrayal because he loves you. Second, Jesus is glorified because he loves you. And third, Jesus wants you to love others because he loves you. I'll do those one more time. Jesus walked through betrayal, walked through betrayal because he loves you. Jesus is glorified because he loves you. Jesus wants you to love others because he loves you. That's my hope this morning, that we would sense, that you would sense the love of Christ in a way that feels as real as it actually is, and that his love would help us reflect that love to others. So let's get started by looking at that first way we can see Jesus' love here in this passage. Jesus walked through betrayal because he loves you. Now, uh, if you were with us last week, Pastor Eric preached on this moment that was really confusing for the disciples. Uh, they're getting ready to eat, likely their Passover feast. 
and Jesus starts washing the other disciples' feet. It's uh, bothered them quite a bit, especially Peter. This is not something that a Jewish rabbi normally would do, would ever do. Uh, foot washing was something that servants were supposed to do, but that was the point. And Jesus is showing I, he came as a servant to these, to these disciples. He came to serve. So that washing their feet, that was a natural outgrowth of his love for them. Then we get to verse 21, our passage today. And it begins by telling us that Jesus was troubled in spirit. Now that phrase troubled in spirit kind of has this sense of, of, of mi- being mixed up. Okay? Uh, and the mixing up leading to distress. So you could almost imagine having all your emotions like clothes in a, in a dryer. Right? Just kind of all tumbling around and the result is just feeling anxious and distressed. That's the sense here that, that this is what Jesus is feeling. Maybe you know what that feels like. And the verse goes 21 goes on to explain why Jesus was feeling this way. It's because he knew what was about to come, and he knew that one of the men in that room was about to betray him. And just to give you an idea of the setting here, this is at a meal, again, we talked about that, is likely the feast, the Passover feast. Uh, and then uh, at this point in um, first century Judaism, it was common when you're kind of done with your food or as you're eating to kind of lay back on your elbows, kind of very relaxed, so the idea is almost like watching football on the couch after Thanksgiving meal, right? Just very comfortable, very relationally close. And so that's the moment. Jesus is not relaxed. And that's the moment when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. So you can imagine what that would have been like if you're sitting in this room with these men that you've been with for years. You've gone through all sorts of things together. You've seen Jesus perform miracles. And suddenly you look around like, wait, one of us is going to betray Jesus. And John kind of captures the awkwardness. He says they're looking around at one another, wondering, who is it? <laughs> Maybe wondering, did I do something? <laughs> was this me? And so Peter motions at the disciples sitting next to Jesus. This is likely John to ask Jesus, who is it? And Jesus kind of almost surprisingly pretty much just tells him. There's no, nothing opaque about what he says. No comments about light and darkness or belief or unbelief. He just tells them, it's the one that I'm going to give this morsel of food to when I've dipped it. It was normal for a host of a meal at this point to periodically take pieces, like particularly good pieces of food, and give them to guests who are honored. This is a way of honoring different guests, right? uh, The host would take a really good piece of food, really good piece of bread, and give it to an honored guest, which is interesting, right? That's what Jesus does for Judas here at this last moment. And we know from Luke's gospel account, Judas has, up to this point, already gone to the Jewish leaders. He's already talked to them about a price. And Jesus already knows that Judas is going to betray him. Jesus knows this. And yet, he still, with these final moments, chooses to honor Judas by handing him this food. Loving even Judas all the way to the end. And there was something about that moment that finally broke Judas. That last act of Jesus honoring him was the last straw for him. And he gives in to Satan's attack and decides to go ahead with his plan. He cannot accept Jesus' love for him. And so Satan makes Judas the next move of his own endgame to infiltrate Jesus' closest circle of friends and to find a way to kill the Son of God that he hates. And so Judas runs out, runs out to betray Jesus, one of the people who is closest to Jesus in his earthly life. Now, perhaps you've been betrayed by someone before, by somebody you, you love, someone that was close to you. 
I can't really imagine what this would be like to have a very close friend essentially sell you out for cash. It would be bewildering. It would be hurtful, horribly hurtful. Winston Smith at CCEF says that the pain of this kind of betrayal is, is, is very much like touching a hot stove. Everything in you feels the need to, to recoil, to get away as fast as you can, whether that's physically or emotionally. If you've ever been betrayed by someone you deeply trusted, you probably know what that feels like. But that's not what Jesus does here. Instead, he moves towards Judas. And one last act of kindness and love by honoring him with this, this piece of food that he gives to him. <clears throat> it's extraordinary love. It's extraordinary love that Jesus shows to Judas. It's also the kind of love that Jesus shows to us. It shows to you, if you're one of his followers. He loves you fully. And he loved you without concern for how it was going to hurt him. If you're a believer, you, you might know the frustration of returning to some pattern of sin, feeling, how can Jesus keep loving me if I keep doing this over and over again? Maybe you're tempted to wonder, yeah, if Jesus could ever come to you, would want you to be near him. But he does. Jesus loves without regard for what it will cost him, the pain it will cost him. He does that because of his love for us. He loves us enough to walk through whatever pain it requires to bring you to live with him. As we get to the end of this little section about Judas, it's obvious that Jesus is troubled, but he's still fully, fully in control of the situation. Right? He tells the disciples Judas would betray him. Jesus tells Judas to hurry up and get on with it. And Judas obeys. He leaves right away. This is like Jesus said back in John 10, no one takes his life from him. He is willingly choosing to lay it down. That's our Savior. That's the pain that he's willing to go through for his love for us. So that's the first way that we see Jesus' love for us in this section. He's willing to walk through betrayal because he loves you. So let's move on to the second way we see Jesus' love for you. <clears throat> Jesus is glorified because he loves you. So the disciples are left alone with Jesus after Judas leaves. Uh, Jesus begins speaking to his disciples, and this talk goes on for quite a while. Um, we're in verse, chapter 13 here. Jesus isn't going to stop talking until chapter 18. And so this is a very, very long conversation that Jesus is having uh, with the disciples. John records it for quite a while. These are Jesus' final words to his disciples, to his closest followers, before he goes to his death. And he starts it there in verse 31. If you can see that. By saying this, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself and glorify him at once. Now, as we've learned through this, through this series, John does not shy away from including uh, difficult phrases that Jesus said. John has no problem including those. Uh, this is another one of those. Lots of glory and glorifying going on uh, between God the Father and God the Son here. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is that both he and God the Father are going to be glorified in what's coming. Right? The Son of Man is Jesus. He's glorified in what's happening. God is glorified in what Jesus is doing. And then God the Father is going to glorify Jesus as a result of what he's doing. Okay? Um, Don Carson, who's a theologian, we've heard from him before in this series, he says that what we should take from this... All of this is that Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission and the Father's work are so closely connected that they cannot be separated. Both are glorified in what the other person is doing. 
What God the Father and God the Son are doing are the same mission. Both are glorified. God the Father is being glorified as we see his plan of salvation that has been anticipated for thousands and thousands of years. We're starting to finally see it come into focus here. And he is glorified as he acts to save a rebellious world. God the Son is glorified as the one who's going to make that possible through his death and his resurrection. And there's no tension between these two. There's no sense that God the Father and God the Son are in any way at odds with one another. They're both equally and fully glorified in what they're about to do as they reveal God's plan of salvation for the world. What's really extraordinary about this is that this is the moment when Jesus really has his disciples focus in and say, listen, this is when I am glorified. Now is the time when the Son of Man is glorified because his betrayers just walked out the door into the night so that he can go to the leaders of God's people so that they can arrest him and they can kill him. And Jesus is saying, now is the moment. Now is when I am glorified. That's how our king is glorified. It's such a different kind of glory than what we're used to seeing in the world around us. If you think about it, politic, politicians, presidents, they glorify themselves by talking about what they believe are their accomplishments and how much better they are than someone else who might want their job. That's how they glorify themselves. Historically, kings like Pharaoh or Herod glorify themselves by accepting people's worship and praise of them. Even the gods and goddesses the Greeks imagined glorify themselves by asserting power over other gods and over human beings. It's always comparative in some way. You glorify yourself by showing how much better you are than somebody else. That's how people glorify themselves. But that's not how Jesus glorifies himself. How God the Father and God the Son are glorified are by looking at all of these little creatures that they made who were rebelling against him, who were fighting against him, fighting against other creatures he made, deciding he was going to come live with us, give his life for us. Let us reject him, let us betray him, let us kill him. And the reason he did it was because he loved us, because he loved us enough to do that. He wanted to bring us into his family. And so rather than letting us die in our rebellion for all those who call on the name of Jesus for salvation, he took the judgment and wrath of God the Father that was headed towards you for your sin. If you have called on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's what he did. He took the judgment and wrath of God the Father, and that is how he's glorified. Jesus is going to go on in verse 33 to say again that he's going where no one else can come because no one else can do what Jesus is going to do. None of us could do this. You can't, you can't satisfy the wrath of God for the world by your death. You're polluted by your sin. You're too polluted by your sin to have done that. None of us could unite all the church into one by our death and resurrection. All right, we needed Jesus to do this. We needed God the Son to die for us. And that's what he did. By going where no one else could follow him to do what no one else could do. Jesus loved his own to the end. He loved you all the way to when he was heaving his last breath on a cross. And in that death, God the Son and God the Father were glorified as they redeemed the creation that had been twisted and broken by sin because he loves you. That's the second way we see Jesus' love for us in this passage. That he is glorified by his love for us. And now he's going to go on to explain that, that his love for these disciples... And consequently, his love for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, has consequences for them and their lives too. 
This is the last way we're going to see Jesus' love at work in this passage. Jesus wants you to love others because he loves you. Now, Jesus kind of suddenly shifts from talking about glory and going to where the disciples can't follow him to saying that now there's a new command I give you. He said that in verse 34. So take a look at that with me, if you will. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, those words sound simple, but anyone here who knows who spent any real time (laughs) trying to love like Jesus, that is a very, very hard command that Jesus just gave us there. And something else you might have noticed is Jesus says that this, uh, this is a new commandment that he's giving to his disciples. Did you notice that there? He says this is a new commandment, which is odd, because there's a lot of places in the Old Testament that talk about how we are to love those around us, specifically our neighbors and those who are, specifically for Israelites, how they are to love those who are their fellow Israelites. So, for example, Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then Jesus says something very similar to this in Matthew 22. A lawyer comes and asks him, what's the greatest commandment? You may be familiar with this. And Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So, it's worth asking, what's going on here? Why is Jesus calling this a new commandment? And you might have noticed, as I read those, that Matthew, specifically in Matthew, well, both of them have this, but Jesus' words in Matthew 22, there's a subtle difference between how he's uh, instructing them to love others. In Matthew 22, he says, uh, the greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 34, he says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And so what's new, Jesus is saying, is that there's a new standard for how we love one another. It's not just how much you love yourself, which is by itself a pretty high bar to clear, loving your neighbor as in the same way that you love yourself. But now, the standard for us is how much Jesus has loved us. And this is right after Jesus has just washed all these disciples' feet. <laughs> and now he's saying, it's your turn. Disciples, this is your new standard. You are to love those around you. Specifically, he's talking here about Christian brothers and sisters. You're to love your brothers and sisters like I have loved you. And we know, this is right before he's about to be nailed to a cross for these men, out of his love for them. That's the love. That's our new standard for how we are to love each other should make you think, "Uh uh-oh, that is not possible. That is not possible. Not one of you can do this. None of us can love one another like Jesus loves you. None of us are able to imitate, reflect, and give the kind of selfless love that Jesus gave to any of us. And in part, that is why Jesus had to die for you. Because you don't measure up to that standard of selfless, self-giving love that God requires of you. You do not have that inside of you. You just don't. You, and this is part of, of what happens when Jesus dies on the cross, when you accept Christ as your Savior. Part of the glorious exchange he gives you is he gives you the credit for living this kind of life, for giving, living this kind of perfect, selfless love, loving others in that way. And in exchange, he took 
the judgment for your selfish, not selfless love. It's the same thing. Selfish love that you love to others, you give to others. That is what he did on the cross. That's the exchange that we get when we come to know Jesus, when we follow him as our Lord and Savior. And if we want to love others like Jesus loves us, we have to know that love. We have to receive it. Because we can only give what we've received. If you have not received Jesus' love, you are not going to be able to love like Jesus. And Jesus' love is both the example of how we are to show love to others. He's our model, but he's also the source of the love that we then are supposed to show to others. Uh, we, uh, we have a, my wife and I have a, a two-year-old named Silas. Some of you know him. Uh, he had his little world rocked this last year when his little sister Joanna was born. Uh, he does love her. It took some time to appreciate her. But really, he does really love her now. But that love needed two things. <laughs> Probably more, but these two in particular. Uh, he needed to learn how he was supposed to love his sister. Right? He didn't know really what to do. But he needed to know when she's sad, you take a toy or you go give her a hug or you try to make a funny face at her. Right? But he did those things not by out of the goodness of his own heart. He did that by watching. Uh, he did that by watching, seeing a model of how he was supposed to love Joanna. But the second and more important thing he needed is he needed to know, and he still needs to know, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that his mom and dad love him very much in order to show love to his sister. Because otherwise, she is just an attention thief. Right? That's all she is. Her little smile just takes attention, and he doesn't get it. But if he knows, without any doubt, that he is loved, then he is able to show love to, to her. Now, if we... I know that I just compared our love uh, to Silas, to Jesus' love for us. So that's not a perfect analogy by any means. We know that. But uh, you get the, the picture. Jesus' love for us is both our example of how we show love to those around us, but also it's the source of how we're able to, it, it's kind of the resource that we need to then give that love to others as well. If we try to love others like Jesus without receiving Jesus' love, then we won't know how to do it. We'll do it wrong. And also eventually we're going to run dry because the love inside of us is not enough for that. <clears throat> There's a couple important implications from that truth that I want to talk about. Uh, the first is we need to be constantly growing in our understanding of Jesus' love for us. And if we understand that, if we understand Jesus' love for you, if you understand Jesus' love for you, and you understand it in, a cre in a, an increasing way, the more you're going to be capable of loving others in a truly Christ-like way. And that doesn't always just mean sacrificing selflessly for others. Right, this is why we need Jesus' love as a model for us. Sometimes loving someone selflessly means being willing to graciously talk about sin, confront it in a way that's, that's loving. And sometimes it is loving selflessly by giving up what you want, perhaps giving up your own life to serve someone else. But we have to see how Jesus does those things for us if we're going to have the model uh, Jesus is our model for how we are going to do that. And if we truly want to know Jesus' love for us, like Paul says, in a way that actually surpasses knowledge, in Ephesians 3, and we have to allow it to move from our head down to our heart. And that is a very difficult thing to do. I once heard uh, Tim Keller in a preaching seminar quote a guy named Theophan the Recluse. So that's a, you probably haven't heard much from him before. Um, Theoph and the recluse talk about this exact thing. Right? How do you help the majesty and glory of Jesus descend from your head into your heart? 
and Keller, via Theophan and Theophan, and probably a few other people as well, says that the way you do this is by spending time actually contemplating Jesus and his works. Spending time thinking about it. Actually giving thought space to where you can enjoy and meditate on what Christ has done for you. It spends time thinking, which, which is hard for us today, right? Most of our free time is, it's much easier to, to read your news, tap onto your phone, uh, sometimes just to, to go to sleep. <laughs> um, but this is how we help, this is one of the ways that we help our heads transfer the knowledge of Jesus down into our hearts by spending time meditating on and savoring what Jesus has done for us. We're going to have a lot of opportunities to do that over these next several weeks as we see Jesus move uh, his disciples and move himself towards, towards the cross. So I encourage you to do that. And on either side of the contemplation, uh, on the front end of it, it means reading, reading scripture, right? Knowing what Jesus has actually done so that, so that we can meditate on it. And then on the back side of it, it's spending time in prayer, thanking him for what he's done speaking to Jesus about what he has done for you. All right, this is part of what it means to abide in Jesus. We'll hear about that in a few weeks. But abiding in Christ is one of the ways that we allow our hearts to enjoy the glory and majesty of Jesus. And when we do, and when we do that, what we will see is a face that is so lovely and so affectionate, it surpasses anything that we have known on earth before. No parental love will surpass what Jesus, how Jesus loves us. His affection is stronger, more powerful, more alluring than anything else that we have ever experienced. A view of that face, of Jesus' face, is what gives us the resources that we need to follow this command to love those around us. That was a very long first implication of that truth, (laughs) that Jesus is the the model um, and the resource for our love of others. But that's the first implication. We have to be growing in our understanding of Jesus' love for us, both in our head and our heart. Here's the second implication. Um, We have to love based on Jesus' love for us and not based on others' love for us. Now, this is important. It's very easy to show love in kind of a quid pro quo kind of way, isn't it? Uh, They were nice to me, so I'll be nice to them. It's very easy to honor people who have been honoring to us. It's very easy to be nice to people who have been kind to us. It is much more difficult to show sacrificial love, show real love to those who have not honored us or we feel we've felt hurt by, especially in the church. But it's important. <laughs> That's what we have to do. We, we, if, 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 our, um, if the basis of your love for others, if the basis for you loving others is their love for you, then you are going to run out and you're going to get frustrated and you're going to be hurt. This won't stop you from being hurt, knowing that Jesus is the one that gives us our love, but it will allow you to continue to show love to those who are his. If if, if you do base this on others' love for you, it's almost like, um, you can imagine uh, trying to hook up your your house heater to a propane tank, which I don't know what I'm talking about when I say this. I might be saying something that could actually really cause a problem for you, but maybe that actually is even better than for the analogy. Um, Maybe your heater would fire for a few minutes. Right, but it's going to run out. Right? That, that propane tank won't have the, the quality or the quantity of fuel to run your home in any sort of real way. We have to be hooked up to Jesus' love for us to show it to others. So I encourage you to ask yourself, is your love for your Christian brothers and sisters contingent on their love for you? 
Are there people that Jesus may be calling you to show his love to around you? If so, I just encourage you to remember, Jesus loves you. He loves you very much, with more affection than the kindest person you've ever met. And he loves you with more strength than anything you've experienced here on earth. And that's the love that can fuel your heart to then love your brothers and sisters as well. You probably saw at the end of our passage here that um, Peter kind of misses it. He's still thinking about what Jesus said about going somewhere he can't follow. And Peter thinks he's ready to do anything for Jesus. He's ready to do anything, ready to follow him anywhere, ready to do anything for him, ready to die for Jesus. That's what Peter believes. But sadly, Jesus knows not even Peter's going to stay by his side later that night and into the next morning. In just a few hours, Peter's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. I think Peter's impulse here can be, it can be an easy trap to fall into. God tells us to love those around us. But then there's times it's much easier to imagine doing big things for God than it is to just showing love to your brothers and sisters sitting in the pews around you. It's, it's unlikely that many of us here will have opportunities to die for God. It could be. In particular context, that could be possible. That's not certain, though. And what is certain, even if you don't have the opportunity to die for Jesus, you do have the opportunity to love for Jesus. That's guaranteed. As Jesus is talking here specifically about how we love the brothers and sisters in the church. It's not to say we, we aren't supposed to love those who aren't Christians, but specifically here, he's talking about loving those who are part of our spiritual family, which can be very, very hard. That can be very hard. It can be very hard to love people who hurt us, who annoy us, we still see them every Sunday. It can be hard to love people who we, we believe ought to know better. It can be hard to love people who have hurt us. So what Jesus does is he draws us to himself first. And regardless of, of how we are loved or unloved by those around us, his love for you will never change. And you have to know that love if you want to love others. And this kind of self-giving love, Jesus says, is, is how the world is supposed to know who his disciples are. That's challenging. <laughs> that is challenging. But these, the, the relationships that we form in the church and the ways that we love those around us are part of how we are a witness to the world around us. Now that can be hard in a couple of ways. One, it, it can be hard in a day of technology and media when anyone can look up any story they want to about how some pastor or church member has hurt someone else in their church. Those are awful stories and, and they're, they're wicked in many, many ways. But our concern can't be those. We can't let those distract us from this. Our concern needs to be the people that are sitting in the pews around us here. How we show Jesus' love to each other and how we enjoy his love for us. And when that's taking place, that is a great witness to the world of what's what's happening in our hearts. Someone in my mission group this past week was sharing how uh, they had neighbors who were surprised by the way that the church had cared for them after a, a pretty major life event. And the neighbors got to see cars coming to the house, people bringing food, providing support to them. And it was a witness. It was a witness of Jesus' love for his followers. It was showing what Jesus' love does to transform people, that they can then reflect that love out. <clears throat> So we can love our brothers and sisters here at Hope Fellowship because Jesus loves us. We can love them because you can love them, because your Savior loves you with the sweetest, 
most affectionate, powerful love that you can imagine. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, he still loves you. John tells us that God gave us Jesus because he loves the world. But in order to experience that love, you have to receive it. You have to receive it. In order to be saved from your lack of love, you have to receive from Jesus' abundance of love. So don't be like Judas. Don't walk away from the love that Jesus offers to those who follow him. I would love to talk to you about that if that's you. I know Pastor Eric would love to talk with you about that. What it means to receive Jesus' love and to be saved by him so that you can then show what his love is like to the world. Now, as we continue through the book of John in later weeks, we're going to see with each week just how much Jesus was willing to go through because of his love for you. Today here, we're seeing how he walked through the bitter pain of betrayal because he loves you. He glorified himself because of his love for you. How he calls you to love your brothers and sisters because he loves you. Now, we're about to sing one of my favorite hymns in a moment called The Love of God. And one of the lines goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's the love of God for you. Jesus loved you to the end of his earthly life, all the way to his death. And then in his resurrection and ascension to heaven, where he's alive right now, where he loves you, and his love for you will never end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love for us is so great that, as that song says, not even the sky could contain all of what would be written about it. But that's a metaphor, and it's a beautiful metaphor, but it's abstract. And so, Father, I ask that you would help each of your children here to know the love of Christ for each one of them, the personal love you have for them. Jesus, I ask that you would help us to know the personal love that you have shown to each one of us who is your follower. I ask that you would help us understand the lengths you were willing to go to show us that love and to bring us home to you. And we ask that you would help those things, those, that glory, <laughs> your majesty, to descend from our heads to our hearts. And Father, we ask that you would help your love to abound here at Hope Fellowship. We want to be people who are known for our love for one another. We want that love to be deeply intriguing for those who aren't a part of your family. And Father, for any here who have not received the love of Jesus, I ask that you would use your spirit, you would send your spirit to draw them to you they would receive your love for them. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.